This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and you're listening to a very special limited series of six episodes called the Conservation Roundtable, where we take a deep dive into conservation news from around the world. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Modern Huntsman. I am the conservation editor on that publication, and you can read more on www.modernhuntsman.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is episode four of our six-part series. And by the time I've got to episode four, I have now put out episode one for the world to listen to. And I thought of a, I thought of a name for this conversation that the three of us are having, the Conservation Roundtable. What do you guys think? Oh, I like it. I like Works it. Works for me. Good. So I am uh, joining you once again. My name is Byron Pace. I have two esteemed guests who are going to introduce themselves now. Well, not guests, co-hosts, really. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Ooh, we got we got promoted, Ford. You did, yeah. yeah but uh, the first three were good. You guys did a good job. So now you're co-hosts. So Jess, give us a two-second rundown. Oh, I'm Jess Johnson. I'm the Wyoming Wildlife Federation Government Affairs Director, a uh, co-founder of Artemis Sportswomen, and a board member for Two Percent for Conservation. And Ford, it is a go for you. Uh, Ford Van Fossen, content and conservation manager for First Light Performance Hunting Apparel, working sort of at the interface of conservation and private business. So uh, for those people who are joining us on episode four and not episode one, you need to go back and listen to the first three episodes of this, where the three of us pick a story to present to the other two, and then we discuss it in detail and dig into the bones of it. Uh, it's all around conservation and the great outdoors and human interactions with wildlife. And what an amazing first three episodes it's been. It was so much fun when we recorded the other day. Uh, so now we are going forward for the next couple of shows. And um, who's up first? I, I, it's the, the list is amazing today. This is a really good line. I, I, I was just having a look at um, Ford's story stuck out to me. So because of that... You're gonna. You're being thrown into the deep end first, Ford, and I think uh, I want to hear about your uh, legalization of wild venison um, in the states. Which, to people listening in the, a lot of the rest of the world, they'll be like, "What do you mean legalizing venison? I mean, is that not is it not okay to put that in the food chain anyway?" So you might need to explain a bit of background there. Yeah, yeah, it's horribly so this controversial. Was an intentional, <laughs> yeah, intentional provocation on my part. Um, <clears throat> but a central tenet of conservation uh, in North America is that wild game cannot be sold. And that's largely, I think, uh, a reaction to market hunting that so impacted our wildlife populations 100, 150 years ago. Um, and I guess further back, perhaps, than that. So in with with only a very few notable exceptions, you cannot sell buy and sell wild game in North America. Do you know one of the the really cool exceptions to this rule? Uh, in Hawaii? Yes. Yes. Now we knew it. Um, so exactly. Jake, Jake, who runs that, was on the show um, mm -hmm. a few months ago and explained the lengths that they went to to get all of the approval to be able to harvest wild venison and put it into public consumption. And it yeah. was, they have, they have an inspector with them while yep. they're harvesting the deer. 
Yeah, I I actually ran into those guys in Maui once on a video shoot there um, and kind of got their perspective on it. But I will say a key does a a distinction there, right, with the axis deer in Hawaii and also uh, for a number of species in Texas, right? Nilgai and and wild pig are also sort of commercialized, but obviously none of those species are native. Uh, Oh, okay. Which is kind of the main distinction. So generally native game cannot be bought or sold. The only one I can think of that's a strange except, exception from where I grew up is muskrats. <laughs> Who's eating <are>, muskrats? <laughs> uh, my people. It's <laughs> like I am. <laughs> yeah, in the marshlands of Southeast Maryland along the Chesapeake Bay, uh, muskrat trapping is is a very traditional activity. How um, big is a muskrat? World, it's uh it's like small guinea pig, maybe. <laughs> You're not selling it. it to me. Um, and, and what oh, do they it's taste It's not like? attractive. Yeah, no. I mean, they got musk glands on them, as, uh, as the name implies. Uh, it's like a little swamp rat. Basically. Lovely. I mean, did, well, does it actually taste rat, good, or was it? Is it just being built into the culture because needs must at some point in history? Well, they're primarily harvested for fur, right? That's that's the even the driver. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. huh. yeah. But they're still eaten, and they are. There's actually the the world championship of muskrat skinning, the national outdoor show. Still <laughs> oh takes my place. god! <laughs> to this day, I believe Golden Hill, Maryland, is the address. Um, <laughs> but it's a competition based upon how quickly you can skin muskrats. It's largely Maryland versus Louisiana is sort of how it shakes out. Uh, but there's actually a documentary film called Muskrat Lovely about the beauty pageant which accompanies the National Outdoor Show. Only in America (laughs) could you have a beauty pageant beside a muskrat skinning competition. I mean, what kind of world do we live in? It's a special place. Muskrat (laughs) Lovely is the documentary. I recommend it I might have to look that up. Yeah, I think I got off track. Oh, so you can still buy oddly. And I, I think <laughs> Sorry, is, that was my fault. <laughs> no, no. I think this is maybe just an out-of-the-way thing that sort of nobody ever double-checked, but they actually sell muskrats in the seafood sections of a number of um, stores in sort of the lower eastern shore of Maryland, where it is sometimes listed as marsh rabbit, euphemistically. Marsh that is rabbit. Wow. <laughs> Okay, so um, <laughs> we were started talking about venison. Now we're talking right. about rats. Back yes. to the legalization of venison. Right. So what's happening here? So sacred tenant, like I said, of North American, the North American model, quote unquote, is that wild game is not bought and sold. Um, however, in suburban areas of Maryland, there are there is a sort of a bloom, I want to say blooming, but really bloomed um, area of human wildlife conflict around just burgeoning white-tailed deer populations, right? I'm talking at the urban-suburban interface, um, basically existing in people's yards, in the quarter acre of trees behind their house, eating shrubbery. Um, and obviously that's, <clears throat> that's uh, arguably, it's oddly enough, a depredation, quote-unquote, when they're eating landscaping. Um, but it's also a problem from a vehicle collision perspective, uh, from a tick density perspective. There's obviously a number of issues that come along with that. And obviously hunting is often put forward as a solution, but it's quite difficult logistically in that environment. People do it, um, but it, it's obviously hard to kill lots of deer in the suburbs, especially the numbers of deer that are really 
that we need to be removing from these areas. So long story short, one suburban county was essentially playing with the idea of legalizing the sale of wild shot white-tailed deer. Um, th- there was also a, a sort of a similar kind of incentive payment program, for lack of a better words, uh, put together. Um, but interestingly, said bill was sunk. It was not, uh, did not come to fruition in the legislature. Um, Do you know what the arguments were against it? Was it like North American model of conservation and stuff, or was it a different like CWD testing? Yes. Yep. I would say the primary argument against was sort of the, you know, this violation of the core tenet of the North American model. Um, but you know, obviously the, the flip side, which also came from farmers, to be fair, it it was sort of a a duality there was, well, no one's, you know, it's not getting done, right? There's too many deer. Um, yes, we can hunt them all the time, but there's, there's apparently not the incentive to do so. Um, and that is where it came down, but again, ultimately was defeated. So I largely bring it up. Yeah. Just before we go any deeper, just for those that do not know the North American uh, model of wildlife conservation, it kind of came about in response to market hunting uh, and over over hunting of species in America. You know, we basically hunted the white-tailed deer, the elk, the mule deer, and many others pretty much almost to extinction. And we're able to stop ourselves in time. But a lot of that came from tenants that sort of have been conceptualized, I think it was in the late 70s, early 80s, into like seven tenants. And it's wildlife is a public resource in the United States. Markets for game are eliminated. Allocation of wildlife by law. So saying that wildlife is a public resource managed by the government. Um, Wildlife can only be killed for a legitimate purpose uh, and must not be wasted. Uh, Wildlife species are considered an international resource. Uh, Science is the proper tool for discharge of wildlife policy. And I think the last one is democracy of hunting. So in keeping with democratic principles, government allocate access to wildlife without regard for wealth, prestige, or land ownership. Um, so those are the seven tenets just briefly, which is why, Boom. you know, in America, this was really controversial to start considering that. But, um, you know, the, the thought of there are other issues. And, and I think the thing is, is that the North American model of wildlife conservation is a model. It's not nobody's beholden to it. Um, it can be better. There are updates that need to be made. And, and yeah. the way that the landscape is changing, um, sometimes we're dealing with problems that may or may not fit into that model. Yeah. yeah when I bring it up largely to go to reaction from Byron. It's, you know, it's so different in most of the world. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the North American model is, is something that it's acclaimed and heralded and held up around the world as this true success of bringing species back from the brink. What I find frustrating is that as time moves on, there is this kind of like beholden arrogance to it in in two respects. One, I find, and even amongst friends of mine who haven't necessarily like traveled and seen how the rest of the world also does in some instances, very successful conservation with different models, assume that their model is always better. And the second is that it doesn't, they don't want to change it. It's like, this is a really good example of how the the mechanisms that have been put in place to safeguard and facilitate conservation need to evolve with time. Because you have a, 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 um, 
an instance here where you're not making good use of an amazing natural resource just because something was set up 50 years ago. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily relevant today. And in the rest of the world, and well, a lot of the rest of the world, the idea that it would be controversial, assuming that all of the other systems are in place for measuring uh, population densities and population trends, so you assume that any culling that is going um, going on to reduce population sizes, which are a problem just the same as we have for deer species here, the fact that that food is going into the sorry, that meat is going into the food chain is only a wholly positive thing. That is venison, which is potentially replacing agricultural products, which have much uh, worse impacts on the environment. Uh, And it it just would be a non-discussion in a lot of, in most of Europe, I would say. Certainly it would be a non-discussion here where we we cull a lot of deer every year. Some would argue we need to cull a lot more in order to reduce some negative impacts in some places where densities are too high and they go to game dealers or a lot of those carcasses go to game dealers and they find their way through restaurants and butchers into the food chain and some get exported to Europe. Um, I see absolutely no problem with that. I think it's a very positive and it reinforces, in many ways, it reinforces a connection with nature when people are saying, I'm eating venison, this belongs to a red deer that I see on the hill when I have fortunate enough to go and walk in the Cairngorms. And it it brings that appreciation of respecting the environment and the species that live within it if you're actually directly consuming from it, which I think is a very different relationship to what you'd have with any kind of agricultural product. Um, so yeah, I think you guys should open up the markets. They need to be mm-hmm. there need to be rules and there need to be it needs to be regulated, but it's not yeah, a problem. problem is... I'd say it's a real positive that you've got to this stage, that the populations <laughs> are at a point where you can do this. This should be high fives. I whitetail, I think, are are prepped and ready in a lot of this. I you know, it's sort of they're doing very well um, in many places. And the downside and, and the thing that I was curious about with this bill is <clears throat> the uh what we're dealing with here with chronic wasting disease which is this um, transmittable spongiform encephalopathy, encephalopathy that deer get, which is essentially mad cow disease for deer. It puts holes in the brain. Um, it's a really ugly death. They can have it for a long time. It is a protein malfunction, so it's a prion. Uh, it's, there's no cure, and the only way we can test for it is once the animal's already dead. Um and so if looking at selling this kind of stuff, while we haven't connected uh the CWD to a human transmission, the fact is remains is that we there's a lot we don't know about it. The fact that BSE or bovine spongiform encephalopathy jumped, so mad cow disease, you know, hit people. And there's the human version, which is Craigsfield Jakob's disease. Uh like lays the groundworks for it may just be a matter of time. We don't know if this can jump. So like having to test every single carcass of, you know, a a marketable deer. And then what do we do if they do have it? And in many places, I don't know what Maryland's uh, statistics are for it, but you know, there are places in Wyoming that have 50% prevalence Mm -hmm. of this disease. So what's happening to all the hunters that are eating the deer they're killing? 
Well, it's a lot of them eat them anyways. And they're like, well, yeah. if we're going to get it, we're yep. going to get it. So, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's been raising questions and it's, it's, uh, you know, we had three bills in our state legislature here in Wyoming looking at chronic wasting disease and, and different ways to deal with it. And, you know, it's a, it's a issue. So I was curious if that was even brought up in this discussion or if you knew it, anything I about it. It didn't appear to be, oddly enough. Um, <laughs> and I cheated a little. This was a couple months ago. Um, <laughs> but okay. I want to talk about it. So no, I mean it's a great it's a great thing to bring up. Um, but the, yeah, you raise an important point, Jess. Uh, like, well, you know, there is a, a public would, health aspect to this as well. I would say I don't know. I'm not super up to date at this point on Maryland CWD status. We have it in the extreme western part of the state, um, but I believe that Virginia has it just across the border to the south. Long story short being that I believe Anne Arundel County, the county in question, I would say they'll have it, I would think, reasonably soon in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, the, the other thing that when you transport this meat, if it's infected or you take it to places, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's transmitted through spinal fluid. And and yeah, so it, it I mean, they are even finding like, predators that eat infected meat who then pass it out and that excrement then kind of goes into the ground and then the plants can take that up mm-hmm. and wow i hadn't it. heard that it's wow that's insane crazy. so this is horrifying this prion just exists <laughs> everywhere so it's like once it's spread you're in trouble and so i, I was just curious if that was because you know looking at, at the wild venison side of it other than the ethics and sort of yeah. arguing yeah. about the north american model looking at it from the disease spreading I, I think I, I think there is a, probably a general acceptance that there is very little we're going to be able to do about CWD, mm-hmm. and it's something we're just going to have to live with. Um, I think because so too. I can't see now at this point, especially in North America, but we have cases of it in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how, you, how you can't stop it? You know, to, to stop it, you'd have to kill everything that exists today with CWD. Yeah, you can basically yeah. just slow happen. the spread so it doesn't yeah. cause a population decline. But that's decline, all yeah. we've been doing. There has and there has been Illinois comes to mind as a state whose deer density reductions purportedly have slowed the spread of CWD yeah. considerably. Yeah. yeah. Um, Some of Colorado's deer units too that are CWD hunts have been seeing promising outcomes as well. Oh yeah, and they're hitting them hard this year. If you want to open yes, up another controversial, <laughs> controversial can of worms, but well, we I've won't got get a, on I've, that one. I've got, I've got a controversial can of worms right here, which is kind of the opposite to what you're talking about, Ford. In my story, which is whereas you're talking about opening up markets, this is a story about um, a bill being put forward in the U.S. Congress uh, to ban the import of kangaroo leather which obviously is primarily coming from Australia. Uh, (laughs) And you'd be amazed where, (laughs) funny enough, you'd be amazed (laughs) where kangaroo leather gets used. And there's a lot of kangaroo leather in shoes, particularly sports shoes. Yeah, yeah, cleats. A lot of people just won't be, yeah. Say that again. Boots, don't you call them boots? Yeah, yeah, in boots, yeah. Yeah. So there's probably people wearing kangaroo leather that are unaware that it's actually kangaroo leather, uh, leather that they're wearing. But anyway, th- so this bill is being put forward, but for no, for absolutely no real reason other than people don't like the idea that kangaroos are killed in part for their skins. Because they're cute and cuddly and dizzy. Yeah, I know, characters. right? <laughs> 
I mean, the Australian government have, have said, what on earth are you doing? And they've come out very strongly um, against any restrictions because obviously America is a big market for the export of kangaroo leather and other kangaroo products. And they're saying, well, you guys have to understand exactly what you were doing here by putting a potential ban in place. And there's implications that maybe we can talk around the impacts that international, well, countries far away from, for, like Africa, for example, oh, through yeah. CITES, where there's regulations put in place on the bans of trade of different products and how that actually affects the countries that have that product. So we often talk about this in terms of things that are very emotive, like the ivory trade or rhino horn. But here is something which is not an endangered species. Here is something where there is an overabundance of, of a population by like a huge margin. I'll give Millions. you some numbers here. <laughs> and and, and it's, it is partly our fault, this, as it's funny enough, it's human intervention. The reason why the kangaroo populations are beyond carrying capacity in many places is because of how we've changed the landscape. We've irrigated it. We've, we've turned a lot of it into very fertile pastures. And as a result of which, the feeding is better. And so populations are able to survive much better than they would do under circumstances where humans hadn't been there. Um, because they normally would have died off in, in big drought years. And they do. The recent, in the last couple of years, it was a massive die-off of kangaroo. Right. Just because of the natural cycles of, I was going to say, well, natural cycles of weather, but maybe not so natural because uh, some of that might have actually been climate change or there's implications of climate change there, along with all the fires that were in Australia. But they reckon that... Um, so New South, New South Wales, Queensland, and South Australia and Western Australia has 42.6 million kangaroos. In it. So this <laughs> was in crazy uh, census in 2018. And the following year, the I'm not sure exactly how it works there, but some sort of government body gave a sustainable quota of 6.2 million. So that's 15% of the population. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. Um, you know, based on take that I know of other species, and that, and they say that this it never gets reached. Uh, there just isn't the the demand or resources in place, and the actual value of the kangaroos is too low to incentivize more being hunted. And it is really a commercial harvesting operation for the most part. This than yeah, maybe one point one. Yeah, a lot at night. <laughs> so they, they were saying like 1.6 million got shot that year, which was 3.7% of the population. So the quota was 6.2, 1.6 were, were shot. So they're not even getting anywhere near close to what they actually want to take off the land. So you've got to ask yourself the question, where is this coming from? And why, why are we allowed, like how has this bill even been allowed to be put to the house? Because really what they're doing here is that they are, as per what the Australian government have, have said in their statement, this could seriously damage their ability to conserve some of their areas uh, in terms of biodiversity and, and prevent environmental damage. Because I just think they have a, to control these populations. It's a fundamental misunderstanding or just plain ignorance of ecosystems in the sense of like... You know, we we let emotion dictate, and and they are. You know, like I grew up with Winnie the Pooh and kangaroo and all those. You know, 
characters and they're probably they're more bipedal than most so humans probably see themselves in it and so it's easy to like let the emotion oh, yeah. lead it they but, got like, kind of handy looking things That's yeah always a problem yep yep exactly and and so you know you already have created you know they're they're the fuzzy teddy bears uh so to speak and and you've created this ethos around them um and then you know pile on top of that uh a hunting industries and sort of bad communications and PR that follows it around wherever. Uh, and it, and it probably is the stuff of a lot of people's nightmares when the reality of it's pretty, you know, cut and dried and clean. And, um, when you look at the ecosystem side of and it, and when you look at the science functions, yeah. And this, yeah. Which is, yeah. And, and I, I think just, we, the, the irony here is that quite possibly the same people who put this forward are very happy with embracing the model of conservation that exists in North America, which, as you just stated with the seven tenants, one of mm -hmm. them is base your management decisions on science. That's always <laughs> the one people choose to ignore, even. In, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right, they we, were saying, we, we like to base our anecdotal science. <laughs> <laughs> they gave an example here. So California as a state actually banned the import of kangaroo skins back in 2016. And as a result of that ban, there was one plant in a place called Broken Hill. No idea where that is, somewhere in Australia, that was that was their main export. And basically, that processing plant completely shut down. And now they 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 well they process it for meat still, but the skin processing plant shut down, and all the skins basically just go into landfill. It's it's so, they have soft skins too. I've got a I've got a wallaby hide above my. Uh, above my desk Ooh. are you stroking it right now ford <laughs> I, I i would be i would be if i, I was at the office I'm at, I'm at home for peace and quiet sake but uh yeah uh, australian pro staff of ours brought it over that very is cool, cool. yeah right. so anyway so that's this story uh Damn fuzzy I, critters <laughs> fuzzy, that are fuzzy cute is cute. The i mean you know really the i think the obvious comparison to something we talked about real recently is the old feral ponies right yeah yep, that's exactly yep. what i was thinking yeah <laughs> also feral cute ponies. um we shouldn't we shouldn't kill them because 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 yeah. is basically and, and the it, argument and this goes to something i think jess brought up um a couple of shows ago which is that it's fine saying we need to change something because for whatever the the reasoning might be, it might just be a moral exception to it, but you need to provide an alternative solution. You can't just stop what is happening without considering what the consequences of that action are. And the consequences here could be pretty devastating. Never mind, I mean, they're, they're, it's twofold. One, it's environmental which is what the, probably the people putting this bill forward do care about as well. They're, those things do tend to be quite connected in terms of like animal, animal welfare and uh, environmental protection. But there's also okay. a human element to it. Yeah. You know, the, these yeah. people live in these landscapes too, and these, these agricultural landscapes that they mm -hmm. exist in are providing food for people, not just in Australia, probably exporting some of it to the US and other parts of the world. So, you know, we just need more pragmatic conversations around this. And just to put trade bans in, it feels like you're doing something productive because it's very immediate. 
it creates a lot of headlines. They they feel like they're doing good because they ban something. Isn't that a great success? And so often, bans on trade have the complete opposite effect. Well, it's to what just it they just really forces want to things underground, and it forces things to be done usually worse. And just because you ban it doesn't mean it goes away or that the problem is fixed. I mean, it's the same thing, like you said. Like providing alternatives is also seeing the whole story. This isn't just like feeling sorry for the kangaroos. It's like looking at like why why is this even a thing? Why is this you know aside from the benefits of the leather and the meat and all of that. Uh, you know, there's, it's the same thing with making whitetail available, uh, their meat available to be sold. It's that idea of being like, we have too many on the landscape right now. It is a problem. It is an environmental problem. It's an ecosystem problem. How do we best use the whole animals? So we're doing a service to them in the sense of like respecting their whole life rather than, I mean, they could just be culling them and putting them in piles and burning them or pouring lye over it. And, uh, you know, there's other options that are far less respectful in my mind than at least using that like animals, leather and everything else. Um, you, you know, it's, it's, it fits in, it's just how we do it. And I'm sure there's practices that do it poorly and practices that do it well and, and yeah, just being un- able to sort between the two. But like it, it's banning it outright is not fixing the problem. It's just ignoring uh, ignoring the larger ecosystem issue. <laughs> yeah. So Jess, what is uh, what is your story as a as a closer for this episode? Yes. So so I'm gonna go I'm gonna go a little like really wonky here and and I, I sort of put this in here for for Ford because this article was published on May 13th of 2021 uh, and it just came out. So it's like fresh off the presses. And I know this will really uh, hit his nerd side on the ungulates. Um, a friend, Dr. Kevin Monteith, is one of the authors of this. And, and the wonky name is Short-Term Responses to a Human-Altered Landscape Do Not Affect Fat Dynamics of a Migratory Ungulate. I'm sure nobody Fat understood moms. that. <laughs> Fat moms. So basically... What this study is saying is that uh, short responses for mule deer in areas on winter range that are areas of development like oil and gas, uh, the the sort of short-term disturbance that you see of like whether it's people going to check oil and gas wells or driving on the roads and stuff in these big rural open oil and gas fields um, has very little effect on fat content of the migratory ungulate, which initially... You know, if you just read that part of the study, you go, oh, so like human disturbance in oil and gas. We're fields, good. <laughs> we're good. We're fine. But then if you go further into this, and this is why you always have to read the whole abstract of a study, what they're actually saying is that while this short term disturbance doesn't have an effect, it's the long term disturbance that absolutely does. So what I loved about this is this is a very scientific way of being like all of your anecdotal stories that you come to and say, well, I saw a deer standing next to an oil well and it was fine. Is, is just that like, sure, it's fine for now, but the long-term effect is made mega and long-term and is causing population decline. Um, and so it, it's, it's quite literally the scientific rebuttal to an anecdotal story. <laughs> and I just love it for the irony of that. 
um, because where I work and how I work in, in both legislature and lobbying, a lot of times I have people that are like, you know, oh, I've seen antelope and mule deer out in these oil and gas fields. They're doing fine. One had babies in the shade of an oil well. And you're like, okay, that's one one individual out of a population. And, yeah, did they um, have a choice but to have their babies in the shade of an oil well? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the fact that they're saying, you know, so over the winter, and this is all based on, on winter and fat content, you know, the fat that an animal goes into winter with is the fat that they have to survive. So if they go into winter in poor condition, um, they are going to likely not make it all the way through, or they're going to have a really rough one, or you see population decline because, you know, most mule deer uh, have twins and that takes a lot of uh, energy, obviously. Uh, and they get to the end of winter and they either have stillborns or they birth two, but they only have enough milk to feed one. And so these populations are so reliant on these does being um, fertile and healthy that if they go through this, it's just, you can see as the downward turn comes. So it's this, you know, I love the irony of a scientific rebuttal to, to sort of the, the anecdotal stories. Um, but I also, it's, it's a major thing that we're looking at and uh, this is mule deer specific, uh, cause they're, they're always the specialists of the world and they, they do not have the adaptability of whitetail. <laughs> mm. That's interesting. It, and yeah, it's so important to, we've talked about this before, but to, as we start to understand more what the, the impact of our overburdening presence in a landscape is on wildlife. And I would imagine, I think I, I vaguely remember reading another fat study, which was um, the impact on, and I can't remember the species now, but it was from hikers and walkers and basically, and ramblers and like people basically using the countryside. And the fact that they were moving, it could have been red deer actually. And the fact that they were disturbing and moving these herds of, of deer around and how just this extra activity at a time of year that is very difficult to survive. If you look at Scotland, you know, it's cold and it's wet and it's miserable for months. Well, <laughs> and they say that like, if they're yeah. lying down, it's it's in a place for a very good reason. They're exactly. there because they're sheltering in a very specific way because of the way the wind's blowing and the direction that the weather front's coming in. So if you're disturbing them from that layup position, they are burning reserves that they otherwise wouldn't have been burning. And so they're they're much less fit to be able to survive the extremes. I mean, they might get away with it one winter. They might get away with it for a couple of winters. But then you get that one really, really hard winter. And then you have far higher casualties than you would do if these animals had been less disturbed. Well, and I think, you know, what you just described, it's called the risk-sensitive foraging theory. So animals make this Thank choice. Thank you, Jess. <laughs> with the science. <laughs> and animals make this choice of like, okay, I need so much nutrition to get me through the winter, I can handle so much. It's called like perceived risk or, or, or disturbance. It's basically saying like, if it's a highly populated place, some animals will choose to be there because the forage is really, 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 really high quality. And that balances itself. But, you know, if you have low quality forage and high quality risk or, or high risk, you know, that animal doesn't have anything to make up. So if you think about it in this like sort of balanced scales, you have to keep those scales at least balanced or tipped in the direction of the animal's welfare. But if it's yeah. fighting both, you know, 
being run around in disturbance, as well as poor nutrition, which is on the whole what Wyoming's problem is with mule deer is, is we're we're running out of places for our mule deer to eat because we're we've just whether we're putting houses in them or or oil and gas wells or roads or whatever it is we're you know people like the same habitat as ungulates because it's it's lush it's beautiful and it has a lot of forage <laughs> so you have this like balance and and it's it's a it's you know it's i'm just gonna get a tattoo that says balance again i think i could keep <laughs> saying it on all of these podcasts. down your neck yeah. <laughs> Cross my forehead. <laughs> Something maybe on the knuckles. Like <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes. Across two hands. Across two hands. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, well, thank you, Jess. Uh lots of important things to think about there. Uh and since we finished with you, Jess, uh, do you have a sound to hand that you're gonna make the I, two of us try and guess? Because uh, I pulled I up the sound for the uh your Chinese water deer from a, from a couple <laughs> of shows ago. And uh <laughs> Yeah, wow. It's haunting. Can you just imagine listening to that sound and not knowing what it was like neither of us did? Right. And you're it's, in the in the dark in a like, tent or something. Yeah. Yep. Super yep. Okay. I'm pulling it up. Give me one quick moment. I might play on my computer. We'll see if it comes through. Did you guys hear that? Okay, yeah, I got that. Mm -hmm. So I'm leaning towards one or two things. It's either an, a bird or an amphibian. It's neither. The repetition was definitely birdie or amphibian-y. Yeah, I was just imagining a little frog sitting there like on the side of a pond, blowing up his little bellows. Huh. Um... It's it's uh, more popular in the southern parts of America, like Central or or South America. Mm, Texas. Oh, okay. <laughs> bobcat. Okay. No, not a bobcat. Nope. Kitten on repeat. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's the thing is that, that this was not repetitive. This is a the an actual uh, series of vocalizations. Texas armadillo. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> man, that's the sound of an armadillo. It's it's an armadillo who is sort of stress alarming. Wow. Can you play it again? I'd like yeah, to hear that yeah. again. <laughs> wow. There yeah, you go. I, I was the call curious. of the armadillo. Weird. <laughs> Animals are weird and wonderful. <laughs> uh, especially the armadillo. That's just a weird looking creature. <laughs> as a as a, a little factoid, you might think that armadillos being these like little armored mammals were in somehow related to pangolins, which are kind of their visual equivalent. Mm -hmm. in Africa and Asia, but actually they're not even closely related. Mm -mm. Are they, aren't they closely. related? They to evolved completely separately. They're like closely related to like something like anteaters and the sloth or something. That's weird, right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's, right. That's yeah, right. I went down, well, and, you know, YouTube, YouTube wormholes for weird animal sounds. <laughs> it'll it'll, it'll get you some looks in a coffee shop. <laughs> 
Well, I think that's a wrap for this show. Uh, thanks, guys. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. 